Hey, welcome to Rushcast. My name is Jay Mantis. I'm really glad you're here listening to our show. We're in the middle of our 2016 album series, No Album Left Behind. Today's album is uh, right smack dab in the middle of their 90s stuff. Well, I guess I guess it's not technically right in the middle, but it's it's a 90s album called Roll the Bones. And I'm sure if you're listening, you might be uh, a fan of that album. Because I know it's it's definitely one of the albums. We're getting kind of into the middle of the records that people are split 50-50 on. Some people love them. Some people aren't too big a fan of, of these records. Uh, but I do a Rush podcast, so naturally I, I sort of like them all. And we're going to do our best to highlight the best, uh, the best stuff from each record, as we have been doing every week. So... I started going to the gym about uh, three or four years ago. I had some friends at school who would like lift weights and 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 kind of got me into it. And now it's like it's one of my one of my hobbies. Uh, when I started lifting weights, I would go to the gym. And I was this. I'm still a skinny dude, right? I'm six one and really slim. So back then, I was like freaky, freaky skinny. And these big lunkheads at the gym would that I would talk to about form or, or different activities I can do for different muscle groups who were kind of help, helping me out at each day would say to me, I wish I had your frame. They'd be like, you are set up so perfectly to, to be have a nice amount of like toned muscle in the future. They're like, I wish I, would, I wish I were built like you. Because whether it's, you know, that they're too short, which is sort of a, a different thing. I think if you're short, it's a lot easier to build muscle. But they would just tell me, they're like, you're wide, you're tall, you've, you're, you're like well-proportioned. You're going to be able to put on muscle really uh, nicely. And of course, that meant nothing to me because, you know, getting to that point takes years. Uh, and I wanted results. And this is what Roll the Bones is to me. Roll the Bones is... Jay Mantis as, you know, a 20-year-old a who, it's this thin frame where, like, there's nothing wrong with it, but I, I look at it and go, oh, man, that could be or will be something really special. I'm now the lunkhead of music looking at the skinny kid going, dude, bro, you're going to be huge, right? I listen to Roll the Bones, and it goes it goes with Presto as well, because I always pair the two together, and sonically, they're very similar. I look at these two records and think, if only they had ballsier sounds, if only they were mixed differently, or, or, 
or EQ'd the instruments or something. Like, if I heard, I listen to Roll the Bones and I go, if they would just play these live today, <clears throat> they'd be great. They'd be great tunes with Alex's big, fat, heavy guitar sound. And obviously all the other differences in, in the, the music that we don't need to get into. We get into it every week. But that's how I see Roll the Bones. Good stuff, but has the potential to be really, really nice material. So I'm going to bring in uh, today's guest who wants to talk with us about Roll the Bones on this episode. His name is Aaron Drake from Georgia. How's it going, Aaron? It is going great. So is Roll the Bones naturally one of your favorite records, or is it a record that you just thought you had a lot to say about it, regardless of how you feel? Well, it's not one of my favorites, but it's, it was the first release after I became a fan. Mm-hmm. And so it definitely has a special place in my heart because of that. Sure. So- and it's, it's kind of pushed me further into being a Rush fan, and I got into Rush accidentally, kind of. Um, and then this was the next one to come out, and then you know, just went down that whole rabbit hole of getting everything I could possibly get. Mm-hmm. So did you see this tour? Yes, I saw opening night in Hamilton and then in Buffalo like a month or two later. Where's Hamilton? Uh, between Buffalo and Toronto. I'm from Buffalo. I'm, that's where I grew up. So, uh, Oh, Hamilton, Canada. Yeah. I have my, my uh, like Canadian geography skills are... <laughs> I'm so bad. And I can tell you where any state is in the in the U.S., but when it comes to Canada, I'm lost. Um, so you saw opening day, or open, can you tell it's like early April, and I've got baseball on my mind? You saw the opening show of a tour, but probably didn't know a lot of the material, right? Uh, no, I knew all of it. I mean, all I knew roll the bones backwards and forwards. I don't remember. It's, all the albums I had at that point, but I knew most of the big ones. So you, uh, you probably knew most of the songs that were being played on that tour. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're, you're talking quite a while ago. <laughs> you know, it, I was senior in high school at the time, so I don't remember. I mean, I've got the set list now, and I don't have a recording of that show, but I have one from the night before at rehearsals. I'm just always fascinated by the people who are who are at the first show of a tour because it would like a crazy cool opportunity that I never really got, which was to see the first night and have no opportunity to have you know the set list leaked really unless you know something sketchy went down with sound checks or something. Um, do, do you have any memory of that? Like, or maybe with the new, the Roll of Bones material hearing live, were you surprised that you heard any of them live or didn't hear, you know, how was it? At that point, I honestly didn't remember well enough. There, yeah. I didn't have, there was no frame of reference, no looking back, no internet to have an idea of what they might play, what they played on previous tours. It was all just show up at a show. Right. It, it, the lack of internet thing is so different than uh, you know how it used to be. Oh yeah, and then that's something you got to remind a twenty-four-year-old. Like I'm, con- I'm constantly remembering. Oh yeah, <laughs> so how would how would this guy have any idea what they had played if he's a new fan? 
You know, there, yeah, there, there were mailing lists and no, things, but it wasn't as well, easy as the internet. Right. It was live albums. That was pretty much it. Yep. You couldn't look anything up. In some interviews, things like that, you'd pick up, you know, from Guitar for the Practicing Musician magazine or Bass Player magazine, whatever. Um, but, yeah, it was just what you picked up randomly. Like, I saw opening night of Snakes and Arrows, too, in Atlanta, and that didn't, I didn't uh, know anything ahead of time on that one. I think there was a few songs leaked, overheard sound checks, like day of the show kind of thing, but that was about it. Sure. Now, uh, before we get into the tracks, I want to know how, I, I'm just curious how you feel about Presto. I absolutely love Presto. Really? I love it more, I love it more than um, World of Bones. And although, although the choice of songs I think I prefer might be a little weird for you after I listened to last week's, because Presto, the song, would be my top song off the album. Uh-huh. And I was so happy when they finally played that. And then um, Available Light would be next. Oh, cool. Okay. I just uh, think they're very deep songs. It, it, they stay. They can stay with you. They're not a quick listening. It goes away. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. So, a couple things I want to say about that. Number one is um, I think I'm I'm maybe the opposite, and I know I'm with Getty on this. I heard Getty say how he th- he really sees Roll the Bones as the mature version of Presto. Like, Presto was its own thing, and then it really came into fruition with Roll the Bones. Like, that's what they were, that's what they were striving for when they had, when they wrote Presto. Which, which does kind of discount Presto uh, to a fault. You know, maybe we don't want to discount it that much, or at all, for some of you. Um, but I do, I do see in my eyes as something very similar, like Roll the Bones being a more mature version of Presto or what they were aiming for on Presto. Uh, so I think you and I are sort of like the opposite in that sense. Uh, the other thing is, you said, uh, what was the other thing you said? Presto, Available Light. Yeah, those are my two favorites in that order off Presto. Do you see them as sister albums like I do? There's a lot of similarities, and I do see what Getty's saying, how one leads into the other. But I think after All the Bones is where there's a, a big turn. Yes. Um, you Basically, I think we can kind of blame that on Wes Claypool from Primus. And we're, after that, Getty's tone totally changed, switched bases, his playing style. He went more rhythmic instead of uh, melodic. Although he did... He was somewhat rhythmic on more on Presto and uh, Roll the Bones than he had been on a lot of earlier albums. Sure. I remember what I was going to say. You mentioned how, I forget the terminology you used, but you hinted at Roll the Bones being, um, oh, you said there was like more on Presto to kind of sink your teeth into. Uh, I think that's probably correct because while I consider Presto to be a poppier album, I think Roll the Bones is the poppiest they ever got. I I think like these are the most radio hit like formatted songs each of them are very predictable have very predictable forms uh they have a lot of hooks involved meaning like you know literally things that you uh, that kind of hook your ear and go oh that's catchy on roll the bones not to say that's a bad thing but well there's one other thing that i think may contribute to that i think it's their album with the least odd time absolutely there's one 
was one bar and where's my thing and a few bars of three, four mixed in in neurotica. And I think that's all of it on the whole album. You're absolutely right. And I, I don't know if we could even consider those moments you mentioned, like they're so small, you know, is it really even worth uh, mentioning them as odd meters? You know, they don't, they don't happen for very long. Uh, I, yeah, I'm going to go back and listen. I'm going to go back and listen to those two tracks to try to find those two moments you're talking about. Cause I can't even think of them right now. The whole record is, there's, is very radio. Yeah. There's one extra beat put into the, uh, riff on where's my thing and neurotica it's in the chorus it's just part of the chorus but there's no songs on here kind of based around an odd time no superconductor uh no double agent n- nothing with a you know an odd riff yeah and it's funny because we have that on presto and we get it on counterparts it's just this one record where nothing's really happening in, in that area you know uh, right. l- let's go to the the opening track, and uh, I think this is one of the most interesting tracks in the catalog. I've said it a lot because of how it's performed live. It's performed live a lot. In fact, it opened shows in the, in the coming tours. It's performed live, and it seems to change with the sound of the band more so than any song. Like with the change in equipment and uh, styles. From you know, obviously from '91 onward. Uh, also, the guitar, my one of my favorite guitar solos live because it changes all the time. They they extend it, they double the amount of time the guitar solos for. The first half is improvised, and the second half is the one you remember from the studio recording. And even that, it's like very high note at the end of that solo is. Sometimes E, it's sometimes D. It it sort of depends on how Alex is feeling or what guitar he's playing. We know those Paul Reed Smith guitars had uh, more frets than he uses now, uh, but that it just makes for an all around uh, really uh, interesting song to experience live. Yeah, it's definitely one of the highlights of the album, if not the best on the album. It It's definitely arguably the best song on the album. Um, it's, you got the driving bass riff, which I think is one of the reasons that the sound changes because with Geddy's tone changes, oh, yeah. it, that makes up so much of the song. Getty, Getty's tone changed in terms of equipment and especially in playing style. He's attacking the strings in a much different way in the next couple albums. Oh yeah, and that we can thank Wes Claypool for. Yep. It's and I think um, a lot of people point, definitely a ton of people point to it as the sort of diamond uh, on this album. But uh, I know a lot of people also really appreciate it for its lyric content. You know, it's it's yeah, kinda, and it's a tough one. That it, I think it's just kind of like a dream kind of thing because there's not there's no real meaning that I like overall meaning right like maybe it's not as concrete as as other tracks right it's more of a stream of consciousness kind of thing but not really I mean it's well thought out but not a you know story not a theme like roll the bones yeah totally that's a good point and I mean it fits the title right 
We move on to uh, a track that gets a lot of love and um, might best represent... Well, actually, later in this episode, I might say that again, but uh, might best represent the the popular aspects of this album and Rush in Bravado. Uh, this I can hear on the radio. I can, it's, it's easy. It's very digestible. It's easy to play. Even um, if you you know you pick up a guitar, it's it's not the hardest thing Alex Lifeson's ever written. But that doesn't mean, especially in this prog world where a lot of us are musicians who are here because we like more intricate you know playing and more intricate music. Uh, harder isn't always better. Sometimes it's nice to back off and um, create beautiful music that's easy to play too. And I think they really hit it on bravado. One of my favorite recordings of this track is on different strings. Uh, I think Alex has a really silky tone on that record, uh, or that recording, and also does a fair amount of improvising on that recording that is, you know, I, I, I always love to speak to it because it, it's it's done really nicely. But this, yeah, whole, it, 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 this is another one, Aaron, that sort of, feels way different on the recording on the studio recording than it does in any live recording correct it's very it well it's got the nice extended jam at the end that they try to do a lot of times you know from closer to the heart they've done for a bit and, uh but bravado's was a great ending live mm-hmm. uh it's got great lyrics uh he's actually going back to some greek mythology he hasn't done that in quite a long time um, but yeah, the bass is probably the simplest bass song Getty's ever done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it. It, and, it reminds me of like other bands where the bass is much less important. Because, whether it's because there's other guitarists, more than one guitarist, or whatever, um, where the bass is solely there to mirror the guitar. It's all you know. You might as well just put like an octave pedal underneath the guitar part because he's not doing much creatively and again that's not a bad thing in this case uh but it is noteworthy like aaron said like getty's not shredding by any means on bravado no he's got the one nice little uh fill in the solo and other than that one measure it's all just pretty much straight four four i I think it's just straight eighth notes don't you think it's also a good example of and i'm going to talk about this a lot for roll the bones it's a good example of how they use synthesizers and this sort of roll the bones, stereotypical roll the bones synth that they use. I'd, I'd be curious to know the name of it. I couldn't really find it online. Uh, the This airy kind of pad sound that doesn't interrupt what the trio is doing. Kind of, Maybe people would argue like the sounds in Big Money and, and those records would were kind of interrupting what was happening. They're just there to kind of fill out this thin sound the band had collectively. And I love it. I think it, it, it it's there, and it does a very nice job, like on Bravado. Well, I found part of an interview, and I copy-pasted it into some notes here, that covers the change uh, for keyboards. Uh, Getty and Alex going back and forth a little bit. Um, the guitar parts were far more developed in the writing stage than they used to be with lots of keyboards. You know, Alex said, uh, to be fair to me, with a couple of those records, Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, the keyboards were written and put recorded before the guitars were even put on. Right. And now, with Roll the Bones, 
it's they write, write the three piece stuff first and then add keyboards is you know filler in effect instead of make, making that the bass and then filling with guitar. And don't you think that's kind of from here on that's kind of how it worked and and for some reason we as fans are okay with that. Like like no one really complains about keyboards from here on out. Right, cuz it's it's then being a three piece just throwing off some effects here and yeah. for 99% of the stuff. Which every other band does. <laughs> you know, that's sort of how it's assumed it works when you have um, you're in the studio and you want a, a few additional sounds to kind of fatten up your, you know, all the different layers you have. But I, th- I think, yeah. like, you hear this washy, sort of wispy synthesizer sound on Bravado, and you hear it throughout the record, and it's uh, it's used very well, I think. I think it's, in context, it works very nicely. I want to say that, you know... If this might be the one like super negative thing I have about Roll the Bones, I am not happy with Alex's sound on this record. And it might be why it might be the biggest reason why I think all of these tracks would sound so much better live right now because Alex's sound is so much better. Or really any album after this one, Alex's sound got better. But I listen to it and I go, especially with good headphones, and I think Oh, Alex, like what? come on. I'm starting to like the Presto sound better. At least Presto was yeah, it was thin and weird, but it was characteristic, or I mean, it had its own character, and it was like, it was like, if you're gonna be weird, go all the way weird, you know, so that it's, it's like, it seems uh, intentional. On Roll of Bones, it kind of feels icky to me. I don't know. It's, it's just not what I want from Alex. Right. Well, a lot of that I think had to do with Rupert Hine, uh, who produced the album. Totally. I, I think he was a more of a pop type of producer rather than a rock producer. You know, it's funny, uh, Aaron, you might remember this from the documentary. The only time we hear in that film about, you know, this disagreement for, on guitar tones between producer and Alex is for counterparts. When the the producer's there and he's like talking about how he wanted to Alex wanted more reverb, and he's like, no, you don't need more reverb, or you don't need any delay, or whatever it was, and Alex was sort of arguing with him. I think the the counterparts Tony had, just one album later from this record, is so drastically better. Uh, and it's oh, funny it, to hear them arguing about that. It's 180 degrees different. It, oh, yeah. It, I mean, basically, it was, you know, counterparts had to be like an intervention for Alex from his effects rat. <laughs> You know, counterparts was just plug in, record. And, you know, Alex is well known for spending, you know, hours playing with a sound, getting everything just perfect, getting every chorus, you know, left, right, and center all over the place. I mean, he, he's loved his effects for a long time. And not that they aren't used for great and tons of albums and everything, but, you know, counterparts is where they just went away. And, and like, the tone, the guitar tone on Roller Bones, it doesn't sound super affected. Like, it doesn't. I'm, I mean, I know there are effects on the sound, but on the on his signal, uh, it's just very subtle and it creates a very like artificial sounding guitar. I think. Um, it's, it's very thin. I think a lot of it's a Telecaster and not 
uh, the PRSs, although this is the first album he was using the PRSs on. Oh, see, I didn't know um, that. He's using a lot of Telecasters on this record. Uh, yeah, he used, well, I'm not sure on how much exactly. And in the studio, he uses all kinds of things, and they get layered. Um, see, he had a Gibson on here for a while. Uh, there's an acoustic on Heresy that, in you know, part of it is a Nashville tuning just to fill in space. He'll layer three, four guitars, you know, every time you hear one, and you, it, and they're all different guitars, so it's hard to say which one you're actually hearing exactly at any moment. Oh, it totally is. I mean, that'd be that'd be so nice to know if you open up the the liner notes and it says, "Hey, on this record or on this song, I use these guitars. On that song, I use this guitar." Um, they got better with that down the road. Like with, I know on Clockwork Angels, Getty was really specific about pointing at you know like I I think he used his Sunburst jazz bass on Seven Cities of Gold, and he used it also matched up when with how which ones he played live. But it it's cool to know what guitars are playing what tracks. Now you mentioned acoustic guitar, and one of the things that that stood out to me that I hadn't really thought about when I listened to the album this week was on the track "Roll the Bones." Um, the 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 hook, the chorus of the song. Why are we here? Because we're here. It's bass, a little bit of synth, drums, and acoustic guitar. There's nothing else happening. Now that's a big difference from what we know of that track being played live now. It's got a big, fat, full Hughes and Kettner high gain guitar, you know, power chords behind it. But when you listen to this record, it's very different. It's just fast strumming acoustic guitar. And that's a very different thing for Rush. Yeah, it's a very open, just kind of, you know, sit around a campfire almost to the chorus of Roll the Bones kind of thing. Very relaxed, just strumming. And that's another track that, like, like people, you know, the, this track has its sort of, uh, you know, people, is stigma attached to it because of the rap section. I remember when I showed my buddy in high school, I was like, oh, Rush has a song with rap in it. He's like, what are you talking about? And I play it for him. He goes, that's not rap. <laughs> and my dad was like, that was rap in 1991. Uh, it's not the what? rap that we knew, you know, but... Uh, well, it, it might be weird. Like it's it's cool to me now to look back at this record and hear that and go, "Cool." The the coolest thing about it is that they were trying new things, and I think that's that's the best thing a band can do. Um, but it's when we hear it live, it's a got a different energy. You know what I mean? Well, the vibe's completely different, and I think so much of that comes from Getty's face. The t- the tone is just so incredibly different once he switched off the walls and I do like the walls and he's got a a different one on this album that he played anywhere else. Yeah. But the tone is just, it makes the song and, you know, as a bass player as well, I do concentrate more on the bass. I do play some guitar, but bass is, you know, what I start with and end with usually. Well, weren't you a little sad when you heard Roll the Bones and you realized he's playing a keyboard slap bass sound in the middle of that solo? Or in the middle of the rap section? Not really, because this is one of those pre-internet things. Yeah, it, when, the, when the album came out, nobody knew who did the rap. It was a big mystery for months. Huh. I mean, it, it wasn't reviewed, uh, it was revealed in some, uh, I don't remember which magazine article finally revealed it, you know, months after it came out. 
but nobody knew because they, you know, somebody with the facts, people were guessing, was it Neil? Um, you know, I only had a couple of other rush geeks, you know, in school. Um, and none of us had any idea. It, and yeah, it's a keyboard bass, but at the time, you know, rap, well, hip rap and hip hop was super popular. And, you know, back then it was LL Cool J and, oh, I can't, I mean, can't even remember now. Fat Boys, and I can't even think of who else was around. That wasn't my type of music, really. But you know, you saw it on the radio or on TV when they actually played music. Um, but <clears throat> to hit the lyrics a little bit for the rap, I want to tie a few things together here. I think this album is also Neil's most experimental lyrically. He started on Presto a lot with it, where you saw Anagram, where he was playing with you know, words. And on this one, you, you get the rap in here, and we'll uh, come to more of this, and you bet your life later. Where he just is really playing with words more than he did at any other time. I mean, he's still putting thoughts together, but it's a lot of wordplay rather than... And what does that remind you of from outside. one album ago? Yeah, it's Anagram. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes it comes back on Roll of Bones as like a theme is what you're saying, really. Yeah, he does it two big times, you know, here he doesn't does it a little bit, but not so much on counterparts later with the uh, mm-hmm. animate, but he barely touches on it there. This is where I think most of the end of his real experimentation just with language itself. Interesting. I have um we'll talk about this next week. I, there is like a in I always I've always thought that counterparts ha- does have a little bit of a lyric theme in terms of like not not like uh, a theme with uh, God I have all these big words in my head and I don't know how to say them uh, it, they're not like the content isn't thematic it's sort of the device it's how he's using his how he's writing the lyrics and we'll get into that next week. Um, but that's a good point. I like the comparison between Roll the Bones rap section and obvious, the obvious part in You Bet Your Life, those two being related, which is a connection I never really drew before. Yeah, I think it's just a lyrical experimentation phase that he was going through, and, and that, that's fine. I, I do love the rap. You know, my daughter loves the big skeleton doing the rap. But she was slightly disappointed uh, on this tour when it wasn't the skeleton this time. Your daughter was disappointed? Yeah, she was. She likes the skeleton doing the rap, so and she didn't know many of the uh, sure. other people. <laughs> um, and I mean, I'll speak for the rest of the uh, audience who who probably is screaming right now that they love <laughs> they love the R forty video, but the the skeleton oh. was really cool. Well, I love the R forty one too. Don't get me wrong. I love you know everybody on there. It was just awesome seeing Trailer Park Boys. And everybody just made my day, and I was, you know, just over, over the moon with it. I think the but best was part was the surprise for me was that I expect, like, especially since I had seen it. I think it was uh, Rio and R thirty. I have live recordings of that, and I think different stages as well. Uh, I could be yeah, wrong about the last I'm, one, but I, I was expecting that skeleton to show up. Unlike you, who avoided everything about the tour. I hopped online and watched, I think, every show up till the one I saw, <laughs> or the two I saw, on uh, Periscope. Oh, okay. I saw most of the tour. 
just sat at home watching it live. And the first night, I got all the texts still. The front, my Rush Seek friend here, where we just were sitting watching it, texting back and forth. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! They're doing this. <laughs> what uh, What show did you see for R Forty? Uh, Atlanta in Greensboro. Okay, and those must have been pretty early on if they started in Oklahoma. Uh, it's like. I'm trying to think. Maybe a month in, ten shows in, something like that, and the next it was the next show after, two days later. One of my one of my favorite parts, maybe not my favorite parts. One of one of the coolest moments for me in R40 was when Getty played a precision bass on Roll the Bones. Um, I I have two jazz basses. I love jazz basses, and I, I've always kind of thought P basses were just eh, like they were. <laughs> like they, they just my jazz bass could do so much more. So I, you know, and that's probably because Getty Lee was a jazz bass, uh, played jazz basses exclusively for a hundred percent of my life as a Rush fan. So when he pulls out these old P basses, I'm like, oh come on, man! Like that's not gonna sound any good. That P bass he played, I think it's like a '60s P bass, a '50s P bass or something, on Roll the Bones sounded so good. Compared to all, it sounded different than all the other bases he played that night. So I was I was pleasantly surprised about that. Yeah, that was a shock how decent that one sounded. But it did sound different than it, uh, the jazzes did from on the songs in the previous tours. Yes. It wasn't quite as fat, I don't think. It was just uh, a little bit different, and, and that's a good song to do that on, don't you think? Yeah, because there is a lot of sonic space in that song. Yes, e- even with uh, Alex actually cranking real distortion up through a lot of the song. There's still a ton of open space to play with. Absolutely. Now, is this going to be the first... Is Aaron Drake going to be the first person that I have ever met in my life uh, who will support and defend Face Up with me? Now, do you mean support and defend it as a good song? (laughs) I mean, how else would I mean it? (laughs) No, I'm not going to. I, I... Face Up is honestly probably, I think, the worst Rush song they've done. Wow. I, I put it I put it <laughs> under, I think, I, uh, I think I'm going bald. Wow, man. I, I don't understand. Like, I mean, that's cool. Now, like, that's, I, I'm I not going to. continue a little bit, though. Because I, I spent the last, I don't know, three weeks, I don't know how many times I listened to this album. It grew on me a little bit here and there, and there's some fun little bass bits in it. But it's just little octaves type stuff mostly. We're not in substance, but it's you know like um, disciplinary warning kind of rippy stuff. But it's 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 just so boring. (laughs) I just don't like Face Up. The rest of the album, I I, every song I can I I enjoy Face Up. I I just don't. Man, I'm starting to think I'm starting to think something's wrong with me in that regard because. (laughs) I in my life I've never met anyone who will who will say a good thing about that song, uh, and and I think something's wrong with me because when I listen to this album I've said this before the first five tracks, awesome I'm like I'm good the back five tracks I I didn't like at all so it was a very small I guess it was very clearly fifty percent I was gonna say it was a small percentage I only liked a small amount of the tracks on this album and Face Up was the one that. I, I loved I, I listened to it a lot as a kid. Um, I thought it was fast. It was upbeat. It was catchy. It had a cool bridge. 
I liked the sort of devices that it was using more, again, more like kind of top 40 devices uh, in him repeating face up, face up, face up. So uh, I was always excited to share that with somebody. I think that might be exactly the thing that rubbed me the wrong way on it, where it does seem more top 40. It does seem face up, face up, face up, each, you know, just... And but what well, I, what I'm confused I, about is like the rest of the record like if it, it it should fit in with how the rest of the album tastes like like let's look at you bet your life or neurotica does the same thing doesn't neurotica do the same thing lyrically or vocally not I should quite. say neurotica I think is closer to animate when you get to that where neurotica is actually making up words oh okay so, oh see so, that's a cool comparison animate to neurotica. With the rhyming words and everything. Yeah. It's just making things up on there. Neurotica, psychotica, chaotica. Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, and we'll get to neurotica. That's a cool, that's a really cool point. Uh, I always, the last thing on Face Up, and by the way, I want to hear from somebody. Please help me if you're listening and you like, you like Face Up. You think it's a, in the top tier Maybe not that. No, no, not the top tier. You think it's not the worst song they ever wrote? Uh, you should tweet at me. Let's start a hashtag. We'll do a hashtag, face up love. We'll ha- we'll show some love for face up. Hashtag face up love, and we'll get it going. <laughs> All there'll be like two of us on the entire planet. Well, um, my rush, my rush uh, friend here that uh, he loves the song. So I sat down with him and we went through the album to see if he had thoughts about stuff. And he loves Face Up. Oh, get him on the phone. Jeez. Sorry, man. I always thought the the drum fills, and when he says, and turn it up, and then the drums fill for about one measure, I always thought that was a cool opportunity for when they play. In my head, I thought, when they play this live, I... Neil will like improvise there. Neil will go kind of bonkers instead of doing that cheesy drum fill. Um, it would also be an opportunity for them to break into a, a drum solo or part of his drum solo, right? And turn it up, and then he starts soloing. The guys get off stage, and then they come back on for the next chorus. I thought that'd be a really cool yeah, opportunity. It, it could, but I mean, if you recall like things you've said in previous shows, where you can kind of just tell what songs they're going to do and what songs they're not going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and that one just screams they're not going to do that one. Well, I, don't, I disagree. It, it's I, not, no, it's not, an, I don't think it's, <laughs> you know, a horrible song compared to many other artists uh, or many other things out there. It's not, but is a Rush song, it's, it, it's, it's, I don't think it stacks up. Okay, I and mean, you're not alone, dude. Without a doubt, like I, I'm definitely the one in the minority here. Uh, well, let's move on. We get the instrumental, which, gosh, that's got to be a breath of fresh air in 1991, as you go from moving pictures with YYZ, you get signals, you get grace under pressure, power windows, hold your fire, presto, and now finally. After the juggernaut that was YYZ, finally we get another instrumental. You know, that's got to be a nice feeling. Yes. Uh, I love instrumentals. Uh, on some of the interviews, apparently they've tried to do instrumentals for a whole bunch of albums. Absolutely. But yep. they keep finding lyrics that 
would work. And I guess uh, Kenny had said that Neil said, okay, you keep promising to do this instrumental and I'm not giving you any more lyrics until you write the thing. Yeah, I know so there's a lot of tracks, especially like recently, I think Peaceable Kingdom was meant to be uh, instrumental as well as Clockwork Angels. Like there, there have been a lot of tracks like that and we understand how that happens. Uh, this is a good, a good instrumental though, sort of to you know, con- to combat what I said about the poor guitar tone. Th- I think this one kind of showcases that guitar tone. It's got a nice, uh, sort of a different synthesizer being featured, a cool bass part, cool drum part, but now the guitar tone for whatever reason kind of works. It's kind of that. I don't want to use jazzy as the word, but kind of a... No, I think jazzy works because I I had a conversation with somebody recently about how jazzy means something different in rock music. Like, like I'm a a jazz musician, and I'm okay with saying that, knowing that it has nothing to do with jazz. You know? Like, I think jazzy is a good description for what Where's My Thing is. Or, um, as Getty said in some interviews that I couldn't find, that this album is... Uh, about as funky as some white guys from Canada get. Yeah, that's a highly accurate statement. I mean, like, this is the whitest... If you're going to call Where's My Thing funk, then you you might be the whitest Canadian I've ever met, you know? Like, yeah, it's far from what we consider funk in the jazz world, at least. Right. Now, it was nominated for a Grammy. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it got beat out by something, though. Yes, by Eric Johnson's Quirks of Dover, oh, and yeah. he opened for them on the tour. I did. I had no idea that they were they had touring relations. Yeah, he was one of the bands that opened for him this tour. I didn't see him. Uh, Andy Curran, a Canadian guy. I saw him, and I saw Vinnie Moore. I gotta, I gotta say because I know he's listening. Some one of my listeners emails me. Actually, it might be a couple people who said at different times that they hate Cliffs of Dover, they think it's the worst, and that it's an absolute shame and a, and a disgrace that Where's My Thing lost out to it. But I, I was I was in a cl- classic rock cover band as a teenager, and I always wanted to play that song. I thought it was such a good track. Uh, and while it oh, is repetitive, and a really, really cool showcase of what good guitar tone can be, you know, on Eric Johnson on Cliffs of Dover. You like it too? Though? Yeah, yeah. I love Eric Johnson. Cliffs of Dover is fantastic. And he's one of those guys that, um, I have to look on YouTube, but there's some videos where he uh, had a Gibson. And he just sounds like himself. It doesn't matter what he picks up. His tone is in his fingers. Wow. Yeah, and, absolutely. Because he's, uh, he's, he's, he's like a Strat guy normally, right? Uh, yeah. He plays like a like white Strat. strat guy. Um, uh, I think the color changes, but... He's got a few, but yeah, it's it's strats all the way, at least last I heard. I haven't kept up with anything new he's done in the last probably 10 years, but... Yeah, I mean, that makes me feel better because people are emailing saying they hate it, and I'm thinking, oh, I kind of liked it, you know? And I I get why people don't like it. I get that it's not, especially compared to Where's My Thing, like, there's... It's definitely less technically demanding, I think, but uh, I do like to listen to it as a listener, as a consumer. Uh, oh, yeah. Really, yeah, I think it's a great song. quite a treat to hear it live. Um, when was it? Uh, Clockwork. The Clockwork tour, we heard it live, right? Uh, I think so. It, they played it a couple of times, I think. If they uh, have, I it mean, mu- they did it on 
Roll the Bones. On Bones, and right. I think they did on another one, too. Yeah, it was, um, you know, this might be one of the few examples where I don't like the, again, this is completely opposite about what I said regarding the album as a whole a few minutes ago. You know, the live sound, I didn't think fit this track as well as any other track would. Like, normally, you hear it live, you're like, oh, that's it. this sounds even better. With Where's My Thing, the guitar was just a little too cluttered for me. Especially since I, when I heard it in Montreal and they came back out after the uh, drum solo in the middle of it, Alex had a different guitar. He had his big white ES, and I I didn't know what song it was for like a minute and a half. I because I I couldn't hear it. It was just too sloshy and it was too. I couldn't quite hear what he was playing. I'm like, what 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 is this? What song are we listening I, to? I think it's the delay. Uh, the getting the delay exact to the studio if you're not playing it, you know exact beat for beat mm-hmm. live, I don't think it matches up quite as well, and I think that might be a lot of the problem there. Sure. So at this point in the album, this, as a, well, I was probably uh, 15 when I got Roll the Bones, I'm going to guess. By the way, I'm I'm as old as Roll the Bones. I was born in 91. Uh, <laughs> I was a senior in high school. <laughs> um, that's funny. We, uh, this is where I got to the I got to where's my thing and thought, all right, the rest of this I can't do, and I think that could be contributed mostly to the beginning of the next track, the big wheel, which has one of the cheesiest intros. Like I can't get past, I couldn't get past the first few seconds of this song for a long time, but when I did, I unearthed what I think is a really really good song. Yeah, it's. I see how it's. I mean, it's not as good as in general the first half, but it. I do like the big wheel. I, I get what you mean about the the first four chords. I think they're. Yeah, they do them like twice, I believe. Uh, but yeah, I, I completely see what you mean here. But it, it's it's just a fun little bouncy bouncy song. Uh, Baseline is pretty simple. Uh, guitar line's pretty simple as well. Uh, I believe he's actually. Um, oh man, what's it? What do you call it when you use a pick and your fingers at the same time uh, for on, guitar? On guitar? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Is there like a musical term for it? I think there is. Like when you're on your right hand, you're picking and using and, yeah uh, with a your finger back fingers, your pl- your finger picking. I don't know. But is that yeah, happening it, it, on the big wheel? I'm pretty sure that's the one he's doing it in. Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea about that. That's really neat. Uh, I think I think this song melodically, like I don't maybe somebody else would, but I don't really listen to Rush and think, oh, that's a great melody. You know, like I I don't think they're strong melodically, even though they might have strong melodies. Like that's not what they're known for. This song in particular, it's not very hard to sing. It's not very high. It's it doesn't have big leaps in intervals. It's just a good melody that fits the lyrics. It fits the music really nicely. Yeah, and it's just, it's it's a simple song, and I guess this is going to kind of go against uh, my face-up argument, but it, it's kind of simple overall, but it's got a good little vibe. It's mid-tempo, it's held back, like it could be a little faster maybe, but it it's just held back, so it's got that little groove. Yeah, it does but, you know, I would nicely. I would love to hear this recorded after 
Test for Echo were Neil's style change to where he played back on the beat more. That's a great point. Yeah, so if this tune kind of grooves a little bit harder, sits back on the beat, as we say, uh, Neil does a lot more of that post-Test for Echo, right? Right. After he took lessons with Freddie, his style changed drastically. And I would love to hear some of like that song especially. That's a great point. Played. Uh, well, let's move on because, like, I think Heresy is another one that's hard to digest. It might be the hardest to digest on this album. Uh, there's a lot going on. It's a heavy song, not musically, like lyrically. It's it's heavy. Um, it's sort of dark at times. I think, even though it's got a major kind of poppy sound, it is a, it is sort of dark. I don't know. Uh, I think well, the synthesizers are used really nicely here as well. Right, but it. Heresy is probably one of the most topical songs Rush has ever written. How so? It's well, in '91. I mean, as you were being born, you know, you've, you've got the Berlin Wall just came down. You know, the fall of communism, and it, it's what the song is about. And it, it it was a huge deal. I mean, 50 years of of the Cold War was getting stripped away, and the world was completely changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Russia was, you know, an e- the evil empire, you know, Reagan had said not too long ago in the 80s in a famous speech, and now, you know, it's gone. And you know, it's kind of a dark and a, a bit of a sad song on, you know, well, finally getting away from that, but it, what everything you've lost or how, how long I think it does. Uh, I'm trying to think of the the one part in this song that I love. I I I enjoy that how they strip away the music in the verses. I enjoy. There's a big contrast here in this song. The verses come way down. Alex has these kind of moments with these synthesizers that make for big interjections into the music. Um, also, in the middle, we have not a guitar solo where you would expect a guitar solo, but a bridge that is just simply a, y- you wouldn't call it a breakdown, because there's nothing <laughs> being broken down. It, it, there's, it's very far from metal. Um, it's more of an interlude. It's more of a, let's just have a an instrumental section, which we see later on in later albums. More, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, and it's more of Alex's suspended chords, keeping it nice and open, and just mm-hmm. arpeggios. It's, uh, it, it's the section I'm thinking of that you're talking about. Yep. Yeah, he does not put doesn't put a solo, but towards the end, he's got a couple of oh, just, a uh, just a, like one or two little melodic moments. You're totally right. So at the very end, right before the fade out, right before Getty says all those precious wasted years, who will pay? And that repeats and repeats. You're right. He's got a a beautiful like goosebump moment uh, with these high notes in the lead. Da 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 da. Right. It's sort of got a uh, clock tower. Exactly. Da 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 da. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. Very cool moment. That's exactly where it is too, right before that line. I think it's yeah, a great it's a, track. This it's is a, it's a good little uh good little instrumental section. Yeah, it's definitely an instrumental section, not a solo, just nice little arpeggios keeping it nice and open and moves along. This is a track uh every summer my buddy Brandon who's been on the show, we get together and, and we we play rush tunes regardless of how bad they sound. 
And uh, this is always one of the tracks we play because we both love it. And it's, um, you know, like like most of this album, it's easier to play this stuff. It's also, and I'm the singer <laughs> when we do this, and I can't sing very high. Uh, this album and Presto especially are easy to sing. They're, they're, they sit low in Getty's register. You know, he's not screeching on this album. I think I remember somewhere... So I know for a while he was taking piano lessons around presto time. I think he was taking some vocal lessons then too, um, mainly for prolonging his voice rather than learning to sing, but just for being able to keep it going. Right. Like I imagine he goes into his vocal lesson and as he opens the door, his teacher just was like sarcastically playing anthem or, or, you know, something where he's belting and she's like, that would yeah, be hilarious. we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, let's move on to the track that I think or that is absolutely 100% responsible for uh, kind of reintroducing me to the back end of this album, and that's Ghost of a Chance, after I heard it on the Snakes and Arrows tour. So in 2007, I see my first Rush concert, uh, Snakes and Arrows, at Saratoga in upstate New York, and I go in thinking I'm the biggest Rush fan on the planet, and I know all these tracks and, you know... I love all the weird stuff and none of you like the weird stuff, which was totally silly of me, especially when I got there and saw there were a ton of huge fans. Um, I get there and there were two tracks that I had no idea what they were. And that was Entree New, um, the first go around. And they're actually coincidentally in the same exact slot. They switched out Entree New in the next leg of the tour the next year for Ghost of a Chance. So I was the idiot going, I don't know what this song is the first time around. And then the second time around, I was still like, I don't know what this song is. <laughs> but I loved it when I heard it live. And that made me go back and go, what was that song? Oh, here it is. And listen to it and go, this is actually fantastic. It's, this is very similar to what happened in the next tour with Presto. The song Presto, I, it was the same deal. I got I to gotta go re-listen to that because this is actually really good. Yeah, when they started playing Presto, when I saw that, I, I was like, I waited 20 years for this, <laughs> and it was just in, in heaven. But it goes to the chance, um, just from going and looking it up, they didn't play it the first night, but they did play it a little later in the tour when I saw them. They did add it in shortly. And um, in my memory, really, is going back and listening to live recordings. And it, it is just a, such a fantastic song. It's got the great little melody line. And I will not even attempt to sing it because that will wipe out your listenership. Um, but it, great melody, great little riff for the verses. Uh, bass line is kind of a strange bass line for how Getty usually plays, but it's a good one. It's just a, the only other song you really play something like, like this, I think, is Half the World. Are you talking about uh, the verse? Yeah. Okay. It kind of got a, it reminds me, it's got like a Halloween flavor to it. You know, it's it's very uh, it's minor, and you don't expect it to be minor. You know, right? And just the the feel is just, it's uh, I think half the world's the other one that comes off very much like this. It just it doesn't feel like a Getty baseline. Okay, it's a yeah, great I can see song. that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it well, is fantastic. You know what my my favorite moments from that live recording, which I think is um. I'm pretty sure is a bonus feature on the Snakes DVD. And obviously, I'm yeah. sure you can see it on YouTube, but it's significantly less high quality 
the quality is way down compared to the rest of the actual movie. But yeah, um, my number one is the lighting. I think the lights complement the music so so perfectly on that track. Uh, the fil- the camera work is really nice, especially on Alex. And the very last note. This is a fade out track. Um, the the very last chord Alex plays live. He strums it from the top strings, the thin strings, down to the low ones, and he strums it right next to the bridge, and we get this super, super glassy, high trebly um, arpeggio because he strums it so slowly. And that's like, you know, we don't see Alex do that. We don't see Alex be that uh, delicate that often. Yeah, I don't even remember that, honestly. It's it was just right. that's the one moment in that recording that it went that is so like we don't see I shouldn't say we don't see Alex be delicate we see Alex be delicate all the time, um, but it's just that that one specific thing that I don't I can't remember him doing that anywhere else. Yeah, I don't remember him doing that anywhere else either. Um, I, I don't even think I've watched the video that I have it, but I just I've listened to it tons of times. I don't think I've watched it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, check it out. It's it's a cool moment. Um, Neurotica is a song that was the butt of a joke. With I've said this before. I had a friend that I played in jazz groups with. He was a percussionist and wasn't the biggest Rush fan, <laughs> uh, but had respect for Neil Peart regardless of what you know. There are definitely some things about Neil that is funny that are funny to percussionists. And uh, Neurotica was his favorite because he walked in in his other buddy's room or something and heard Neurotica and thought it was the funniest thing he had ever heard. So he'll uh, he would always sing it jokingly, Neurotica, and and make fun of Rush. Uh, that hurt for a little bit, Paul. But um, well, <laughs> it's a well, funny it's song. But you've got some cool things to say about it. Well. Let me back up your friend for a second with a quote from Getty from May of 2015. Uh, Just quoting Getty here. Just recently, I listened to the song Erotica, and I thought, what the F was that? It's just a strange tune. I feel we've had a very up-and-down career as songwriters, but one thing that always helps us our honesty in what we're doing. And like it or not, this is what we are. (laughs) So, So even Getty is kind of like, what were we doing? I mean, you can't argue it's not a weird track in the grand scope of Rush. <laughs> the grand scheme of things, like, you know, again, Anthem, uh, Working Man, all the way to, like, Caravan and Brought Up to Believe or Far Cry or uh, something like Mystic Rhythms. That's the other end of the spectrum. But then Neurotica is, like, I, you know, I think it's a sister song with Scars. I, I see it as a more polished, more mature version of Scars. You know, I, I agree with that, but I do like Scars better, but I think that's due to the due to that awesome drum line. I, I just love the, the drum part in Scars, um, you know, that, that he added into the solo later. Sure. Uh, but but Neurotica, yeah, it, it's it definitely sister to Scars. It's got the... Well, unlike Scars, this isn't synth bass all the way through. He actually is doing bass for the choruses, I believe. Right. Um, but it's, I think that in the synth part is actually simpler than, than Scars. Scars, is, it varies up a little bit, where Neurotica, it's, 
one line and it switches to a second slightly different line and that's it for the synth parts. Right. But here we have more, a lot more of the Neo being experimental. Just making up words, I mean, with obvious meaning, but it's just making it up and then he's doing the little snap thing for the a bit towards the end, which actually kind of works, but <laughs> I'm not, I like the song. I'm not a huge fan of the chorus this lyrically. Yeah, this one definitely grew on me in the last couple of years, mainly because I've introduced people to Rush and have them go, oh, Neurotic is awesome. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, there's like a hundred other awesome songs, right? Uh, kind of the opposite of how I felt about The Big Wheel with Neurotica, I love the first couple of seconds. Um, we get that synth bass, and then this utter like crash and explosion of sound, which I it, it's um, I believe a combination of a big guitar chord with some sort of roll the bonesy synth kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's an E7 chord, right? And I think. They really dialed this in in the next few records, uh, the the concept of having Alex and the synthesizers work almost as one instrument, and their two sounds together, playing complete unison, make a really cool effect, and and that's evident in that first big chord in Erotica. Yeah, and you have that nice huge first chord, but then he starts it back to just dyads for most of the yep. verse, if I remember right. Yep. Which, you so know, it's nice and thin and open, where you got the bass doing that, and what do you concentrate on the lyrics, and then it kicks into that little riff when the um, synth pattern changes, and, and you get the riff going. You know, I'm kind of glad we didn't we didn't ever hear this live because I don't want to hear <laughs> Alex attempt to sing that huh, part in the chorus. Because I imagine it would be pretty bad. Yeah, but it's, I always have fun watching it. Always think he does it so little; it's great when he does. So. And I'll also give him credit. Uh, his singing has improved so drastically as they as their you know playing evolved and as their uh, touring increased. Like you watch some old stuff where you can actually hear what he's singing and it's not good, but lately his singing sounds really really nice. Yeah, it's just practice. He doesn't do any real singing, although I was kind of hoping they'd make him sing, I think, him going bald on the last tour. Oh, yeah, we're all hoping uh, for that. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. I mean, he he would have done that as a joke. I, I could see him doing that as a joke, even if only for, you know, like a chorus. Yeah, even just as a teaser or something, you know? Right. Just hint at it. Yeah, I would have loved to see him do that. It just would have made me laugh. Um, but in this one, one thing I want to point out in this one is you do get the, a little bit more. Neil gets into science uh, in a lot of songs, but you get the time of the spiral space is a curve thing, which is technically accurate, well, at least for the space part. Um, and he does touch on that in this one again. Uh, I do like when Neil gets all sciencey. Now we got about five minutes left, so let's hit this last song and anything else we might have. Um... I want to hear what you have to say about You Bet Your Life first because it's a song that I've never heard anybody talk about, ever. So I don't want to say things and have you react to it. I'm just curious to see what somebody else has to say about this song without me saying anything first. 
All right. Well, I actually do like this song a lot. I, with the exception of Ghost of a Chance, I think it's probably the best uh, second half of the album. Uh, people, I get a lot of people probably will not like the, the uh, chance bridge, isn't it? Yeah, the chant sex is a bridge and not the chorus. I think I would I would consider uh, it a chorus as it repeats. Oh well, either way, that part, the chanty part, um, I do like that quite a lot. Uh, unlike with neurotica, it's actually words, um, which is kind of fun. It's kind of close to totem, and it's throwing everything in there kind of method. Mm-hmm. Um, the little odd to even part, I don't think is fantastic, but a lot of the verses, it's a nice little fun, bouncy uh, baseline, not too far off of You Bet Your Life and how that's going. Um, I love the song. Yeah, and it's, I do too. I, I think it's really uh, sort of under, underrated in a way. Like, it's definitely not the strongest Rush song ever, but I think as a piece of music, it does a really nice job of conveying emotion and and sort of uh it's just, just a good sounding song like the chanting at first was weird to me and i i would i have actually labeled you bet your life as maybe the poppiest thing rush ever wrote and i don't think that's a bad thing it's just kind of the furthest along that it's the furthest down the road that road that they ever went in my opinion but uh it, nonetheless i think it's really good it's one of my favorites to put on my sleep list for whatever for whatever reason, it just kind of brings me back to traveling around Saratoga the day of a Rush show. I must have listened to Roll the Bones on the way to a Rush show once because that's always the environment I end up in uh, mentally when I listen to this song especially. I can completely see that. Uh, I, I guess the question is, like, does it wrap up the album... Well, is it in its right in the it, correct slot? That I would probably say no. Uh, I do. I've been thinking about your last song, the album idea a bit. Well, I, I love uh, Everyday Glory. I love Available Light. Um, eh, not so much High Water. It's okay, but it's not on par with the rest of the album. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do love Carve Away the Sounds. I like a lot a lot of the closing ones, and I like this one too. But I, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know what how you switch the songs around. Yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. Like what you put there. Um, maybe it's maybe we you know we agree that it's not the best. It doesn't really close the album out perfectly. But I don't. I'm not sure what you put at the end. Probably face up. Let's just put face up at the end. I think that summarizes all the bones, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> You guys, remember to send your tweets with uh, hashtag FaceUpLove. Let's show some love for FaceUp. We'll see if we can make that happen. Uh, I think the album artwork is so is so unique. Like you, when you see that in a record store, you have to stop and look at it and go, "Wait, what's going on here?" There's a lot so, happening. Yeah, now you talked about about the album. Uh Art on another show. I don't remember which one off the top of my head. But you we were talking about the three on the dice. Now, the theme of the album is chance, and all the songs relate to it in one way or another. But if you follow the threes down, they get random at the bottom. Yes, they do. 
Yeah, but it descends into chaos. It doesn't stay. Yeah, nice they're, all, they're like. Uh, well, it's it's like the last three or four rows where they really start changing them up. Uh, but yeah, it's a cool idea. It's a cool looking album. Uh, I was substituting for a math teacher uh, a couple of years ago, and she had a big grid for like. Um, like a big graph paper sort of thing on her whiteboard. And I had like no classes for like an hour and a half. And I sat there and drew all the little things in. It's on my, it's on Rushcast's Twitter. You can check it out. Um, when I got really bored at work one day. I will look that up. <laughs> cool. Aaron Drake, thank you so much for coming on the show. You did a great job, man. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. I'm um, just trying try to flip through here and make sure there wasn't anything else I wanted to miss. Oh, and that- it hit number three on Billboard. It hit number three? Yep. It's so funny. Like, And know, I think Ghost of a Chance actually hit number two on singles. Yeah, I heard uh, something similar. Like, Ghost of the Chance, I know, is one of their most uh, sort of most decorated uh, singles. Ghost of a Chance was on the radio for promotion, and I imagine Roll the Bones, right? Uh, actually, Dreamline was first. Because I remember I was driving between two towns and I had to pull off the road on the top of the hill because I knew the radio faded out going down that hill, that station, uh-huh. when they started playing it. So I had to pull off to listen to the song. <laughs> I mean, the, the first time I heard it, when it was being broadcast before the album was out. Right. Um, that's one of the few things I remember from back then, just, just pulling it off and I got so excited. Um Oh, I did randomly find this little bit of info for you. Uh, ticket prices for the tour were seventeen fifty, twenty one fifty, and twenty seven fifty. So you're saying we should all write the band and be like, "Hey, we really liked it in 1991 when we could see a show for seventeen bucks." Yeah, that when I, I'd forgotten completely what ticket prices used to be. I used to be able to actually go to shows without spending, you know, three hundred bucks for a VIP right. thing. <laughs> Uh, and we, I've, I've recently learned that's a Ticketmaster issue, not a Rush issue. So I gotta always gotta clarify. I'm not blaming the band; it's not their fault. But oh yeah, it's not the band's fault. It, it's and it's like that for you know every artist. Just about anybody anymore, really. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I no blame on them. Oh, oh, one other thing I did want to point out, and this I, the mix on this album sounds horrible if you don't have good headphones. Yeah, it's, I've been it, listening on some cheap headphones <laughs> and in my car, which does not have a good stereo, and it did not sound good. When I started listening, prepping for this again, I'm like, "Does it? Is the album really sound this bad?" <laughs> but I can, you know, I came back and I put on the, you know, the good um, audio technicas, and oh no, it, it's not. It, it's like there's the album does sound good. <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny because like that, you shouldn't have to have the best headphones to understand what's happening musically. You know, I can listen to Power Windows with bad bad headphones and still get the gist of it. <laughs> right, it, it's a mix or a mastering thing. I'm not exactly sure. And you know, different albums fare you know better on different speakers, but it, I think the difference on Roll the Bones is from cheap cheap headphones to good headphones is night and day. I mean, it is drastic. Mm-hmm. Well, what we're saying yeah, is... I think that's all the big notes I, I had that I wanted to make sure we got in. Go out and buy some good headphones, because regardless of what album you're listening to, that's the way to experience it. 
Yes. Um, you can hear so much more detail on some good headphones. All right, roll the bones. That was a that was fun. We'll see you guys next week. Remember hashtag face up love. Let's see it. I'm I'm curious to meet <laughs> literally anybody. Uh, we'll see you next week for one of my favorites, counterparts. See you guys.